All right, let's, uh, we're, we're, we're technically in Genesis 48, but I'm not going to, I'm going to leave Genesis today, uh, and I, I'm going to talk to you about something different. I want to I want to issue a call to the body of Christ. I want to issue a call to Christ fellowship. Um, and really, um, yesterday, I went to the protest yesterday, and honestly, uh, as I stood there for a couple of hours, and uh, I, I just watched cars go by, I held a sign and I watched cars go by, and uh, I th- thought a lot about a lot of things. Mostly I thought about how indifferent most people are to the issues that face us. And how, not only how sad, but how dangerous our indifference is. It was indifference that allowed Nazi Germany to kill millions of Jews and not just Jews, but Christians and people of other ethnic uh, origins because they were deemed less than human or not important. More than it was the power of the Nazi party to do what they did, it was the power that indifference gave them and enabled them to do what they did. So I want to talk to you about three things. And I believe God is doing this in his body. And the reason I believe this is because of the things that I see happening around us in in our culture. And it's no accident that I, I think it's fair to say that America is in decline. Now, I'm not talking about our economy or our military. We may still be the greatest nation militarily. We may still be, even with all of our problems, the greatest economic power. I'm not talking about those things, though I think those things can be questioned as well. I'm, when I say America is in decline, what I mean by that is this nation is in decline because of the spiritual atmosphere and the spiritual temperature of her people. And a nation cannot go into decline unless a people go into decline. And I believe the fact that our nation is in decline directly reflects on where the church is. Because we weren't a nation founded on all the wrong things. We weren't a pagan nation that grew to become a Christian nation. We were a nation founded on certain principles. We were built on certain foundations, certain truths, and even our constitution And our Declaration of Independence, our Bill of Rights, talks about these inalienable rights. That we were not evolved, but we were created. Everything about who we are as a people communicates a recognition and a faith in God. I'm not trying to make 
that more than what it is. I'm just saying it is what it is, and that cannot be denied. I'm not here to have a debate on whether we are or are not a Christian nation. That's not the point. I'm saying we were a nation founded on principles that are absolutely rooted and grounded in the Scripture and the Word of God. And we've seen... We've seen this nation grow, go through great revivals, great awakenings that took place uh, even, uh, even before our nation was independent. And we've seen those revivals and those awakenings since we've become a nation. The very founding of our nation came out of those revivals and those awakenings that took place in Europe and in other parts of the continent there. And so I believe as we look around at our country, at our nation, and we look at the climate and we, we see things happening, for instance, Christians given the choice to deny their faith or take a bullet in the head. We read about those things. We're going to have uh, Gitana come, and, and he can tell us about those realities in other parts of the world, but, but that just happened in the state of Oregon, in the northeast part of our nation, where people were given the choice of a bullet in the head or denying Christ. And people were literally martyred for their faith. And you can say all you want that, well, it's just some deranged person. It's really not a reflection of. It's absolutely a reflection. Those things don't just happen. Because those aren't just isolated incidents. Before that happened, we've got business owners who have had judgments of hundreds of thousands of dollars levied against their businesses and against their personal finances because they took a stand for righteousness and they would not compromise righteousness in the face of sinfulness. And so our government has fined Christians for standing up for their Christian values. That's not an isolated incident. That's happened in numerous places throughout our country. That was happening before people were taking a bullet because they refused to deny the name of Jesus. And what I'm saying is that these things aren't accidents. And I'm not saying this today to put fear into you because I don't think we should live fearful. I'm not afraid to preach the gospel. I'm not afraid to call myself a Christian. I'm not afraid someone's going to shoot me. I don't lay awake at night uh, fear, fearing what's going to happen. I, that's not the point. The point is this. We confess to be the church. So we are the local expression called Christ Fellowship Church. We're just a local body we're one of many local bodies in this community. And this community has numerous local bodies under various names and various traditions, various denominations or non-denominations. And every community has that. And, and that 
worldwide makes up the body of Christ, the greater universal church. But we are the local, we're a local expression of the greater universal church. And that means that what's happening in the greater universal church is not disconnected from what's happening here. We're not disconnected from what's happening in the Northwest United States or in Washington or in San Francisco or in Austin or in Georgetown or in Taylor. We're all connected in some way. The connections get lost over time and distance, but the connection is there. We're connected to the universal body of Christ. We're connected to everything that's happening in our nation. And whether you believe it or not, the things that you do here, the things that you do in your own personal life, really do have an effect that might be hard to trace. So have you guys ever heard of the butterfly effect? I mean, if you've ever watched the Discovery Channel or PBS, you, know, you just watch a sh- show about uh, climate change, the new buzzword that used to be global warming, but since the globe's not warming anymore, they can't call it global warming, they've got to call it climate change. And they'll tell you, you know, the butterfly in the Amazon flapping at wings actually affects, or the sand blowing across the Sahara Desert actually blows across the Atlantic Ocean and, and, and blows into the Amazon jungle, and it actually fertilizes the Amazon jungle. Well, God, God did that, you know. But the point is, what we do in small parts of the ocean that affect how algae blooms ultimately can affect a global climate. So they call it the butterfly effect. Or maybe you've heard this, you know, we're all related. There's only six degrees of separation, you know, between everybody. And when you, when you start tracing, you realize how all interconnected we are. So you, you understand what I'm saying. The, the things you do, the way you live your life, the choices you make, you think they're isolated, you think they don't have any impact, but in reality they do. Because where we are right now as a nation is the sum total of what of the choices we have made and the people that came before us made and the people that came before them have made. So don't ever say, my choice to do this, my desire, my choice to commit this sinful action doesn't have any impact on anybody else. That's, that's you know, the lie of libertarianism. Everything ought to be legal and ought to be allowed because as long as it doesn't affect anybody else. Well, I hate to tell you this, but everything you do affects somebody else. It just does. It's the way God created us. It's the way God created the world. Now, we, we want to deny that. We want to believe it when we want to, you know, uh, do one thing, but then we want to deny it when we want to do another thing. We want to believe it and keep people from driving big diesel trucks and SUVs because everything's connected. But when I want to go over here and commit my sin and make my sinful choices, I want to say, well, it doesn't matter because what I'm doing doesn't affect anybody. No, it does. 
It absolutely does. And so you see this throughout the scripture. This is the amazing thing about the scripture. It's an amazing thing about God's word. God's recorded his word. And so from the time of creation, when God said, let there be light, and there was light, all the way to, we get to the book of Revelation, and and it's recorded that that one day, one day when the Lord returns, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and all remnant of the sin and the curse is going to be gone, and we will live eternally in a sin-free, curse-free creation, And everything in between that's been recorded for us records the history of God's people and God's dealing with his people. It gives us the account of Jesus when Jesus came to this earth, when the appointed time came and God sent forth his son, born of a virgin, born under the law to redeem those under the law. And we were all under the law. We're all under the law of sin and death. Christ came to redeem us. And so when we see, when we read the scripture, we see how God deals with his people. How God deals with nations. So we can begin to look around. If we have eyes to see, if we read the scripture carefully, and we see how God has dealt with his people, we can look around our nation, we can look around our own culture, and we can see that God is obviously dealing, I believe, with his church. And God will deal and is dealing with nations still today. Don't think that the murder of over 50 million babies since 1973 in the United States of America alone is going to go without consequence. Now, I don't know what the consequence will be. I don't know. I pray God have mercy. I believe we're probably living under the consequence of it right now. We don't even realize it. In ways we don't realize. It affects us economically. It affects us emotionally, spiritually. In every way it affects us. In ways that we can't even comprehend. But the weight of that sin and the consequence of that sin is a reality right now in our nation. So there were three things that I wanted to challenge you with today. And I believe God is doing this. I believe God is calling the body of Christ to passion. So yesterday I stood out there and I watched these cars drive by. And you know, most people didn't even want to look. There was Audrey out there waving at every car that went by. And you know, a lot, a lot of the cars honked and a lot of the cars gave us thumbs up. There was this other finger that they were giving us too. But it wasn't a thumb though, it was another finger. Uh, and they would honk and they would yell, but they didn't sound as joyful as some of the people. You know, they could have just given us a thumbs down. I counted three thumbs down, but everybody else that didn't like the fact that we were standing out there didn't give us a thumbs down. They gave us this other finger sticking up in the air. It was pretty rude. And and, and sometimes you could almost, sometimes the, the anger and the hatred was almost palpable. You could almost just sense it. 
But what struck me more than anything was the number of people that just, it just didn't seem to matter. So today I want to call you to a corporate commitment, which is going to necessitate your personal commitment to this body and the greater body of Christ. So we can't just be personally committed to Jesus. We've got to be corporately committed to the body of Christ. But you can't be corporately committed to the body of Christ and to the work of Christ and the kingdom of God unless you are personally committed. As a body, Christ's fellowship must be committed to the corporate call of the church. We must resist the distractions that would keep us mired in personal issues that tend to consume our life and our faith. You know, the enemy loves to get people so mired in their personal issues that they expend all of their faith and all of their energy just dealing with personal issues. Now, I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying your personal issues are not important. It's not what I'm saying. I'm not minimizing any struggle or anything you might be going through in your life. But here's what I am doing. I am warning you that if you're not careful, if I'm not careful, we'll get so mired down in our personal lives, in our personal issues, in our personal struggles, that we will expend all that we have dealing with those things with nothing left for anything else. We have framed our salvation and our theology to be so exclusively personal that we have become deaf to the corporate command of Jesus to be his body that goes in the, to the world to make disciples. We have become masters at seeking personal success, personal prosperity, personal motivation, and personal salvation in the face of all our personal issues. You go into any bookstore, it doesn't matter if it's a Christian bookstore or a secular, secular bookstore, the overwhelming titles that pop out are titles about dealing with our issues because we are people with lots of issues. That's why we need a savior. But we have this tendency to want to deal with our issues ourselves. Think about how many drug commercials are on television now about all kinds of drugs. Do you guys ever do you you guys ever watch a drug commercial and just sit there and laugh? Because after they spend a little bit of time telling you about what this drug's gonna do for you, then they warn you about how it's gonna kill you. <laughs> and I'm like, really? <laughs> Why would you take that? 
But you know why they spend millions and millions and millions of dollars advertising on TV? Because people willfully block out the warning. They don't care about the warning. All they want is the drug that's going to be the magic bullet for them. And if they weren't making millions upon millions of dollars selling drugs, they wouldn't be advertising them on television. I absolutely do not fault the drug companies. Because they are simply giving the people what they want. You know what that tells me about Americans? Same reason why self-help sections are so huge in bookstores. Because we want to save ourselves. We want to help ourselves. We want to medicate ourselves. Because we can do this ourselves. I don't need God. I don't need Jesus. I don't need my neighbor. I don't need my brother. I don't need my mother. I can do this myself. I'm an American Better than that, I'm a Texan. I'll pick myself up from my own bootstraps. Yeah, go ahead and try that. That doesn't even make sense. But we take pride in that. And you know who loves it? The enemy loves it. He loves it when we take pride in those things. And we become so consumed with these things. And we set out to fix ourselves, to save ourselves, to medicate ourselves. And being so consumed with all things personal, we have allowed our culture to slide into such decline that it is no longer something that we can ignore. You know how else you can gauge a culture? Watch what becomes popular on TV. Now, they have reality shows about everything now. I mean, it's really amazing. You know, it wasn't very long ago that you couldn't even buy ammunition in this country. People were buying it and storing it up so fast. Because we were convinced the government's going to take away our guns. And they, they made forts all over with. I wouldn't put it past them. But if you think your ability to stockpile guns and ammunition and food and water is going to save you. Oh my Lord. Please wake up. There's not a place you can run fast enough and far enough to to get away from whoever might want to come and get you. And if you've put your hope in that means of escape or that means of survival, where is God? Where is God in all this? The correct response is not to retreat deeper into isolation. Here's the thing. We're going to either by choice or by necessity deal with the greater issues that are facing us. Either things are going to get better in our nation and we won't have people killing us because we're Christians. And that could happen. I absolutely believe 
If we had the right leadership on our nation, our nation could turn. You know what worries me about that? I'm not worried about the leaders in Washington. You know what I'm worried about? I'm worried about the people out in, the, in, in, in America, across the fabric of our nation. Because I'm trying to figure out how those guys got elected by all these people who, who seem to profess the right things, but, but there's a disconnect somewhere. How can we all profess the right things, but, but end up with the people we've ended up with leading our nation? And I'll tell you how that happens. The same way it happened in the Bible. God says, give the people what they want. They want a king, I'll let them have a king. And you can go through the history of Israel and you'll see that the, the kings in Israel reflected who the people were. And every so often you'd have a king who would stand up. I think of Josiah who set things right, who tore down the idols, who tore down the high places, who reinstituted the law. But as soon as Josiah left, the very next king, we went from the best king since David to the worst that's ever ruled on the throne. And you think, how could that nation go through that type of spiritual reform and experience that type of spiritual revival and then get a king and go right back into decline? Well, it shows you where the heart of the people. That king ruled 52 years. He was wicked. His name was Manasseh. Wicked, wicked, wicked. And the people just joined right in his wickedness. So the passion of the church is in the passion of Christ. So the correct response is not to retreat. The, the correct response is to go out and meet headlong the conflict we're facing We've been called to lay down our lives, to suffer the reproach of Christ, and to do it joyfully. The passion of the church is in the passion of Jesus. And if you do not feel his passion, his suffering, his broken heart for a broken world, then you need a resurrection. Here's a question I have. How can the church go through its life day by day and just with indifference accept what we see? And we're afraid to speak out. We're afraid to act. We're afraid we're going to offend somebody. We're afraid we're going to hurt someone's feelings. In all of our indifference, in all of our political correctness, sin keeps marching on. The culture continues to decline. Jesus said we need to be as wise as serpents, 
but as gentle as doves. That means we need to know when to speak and how to speak and what manner to speak. That means we need to know when to act and how to act with what amount of force or with the right amount of gentleness. But the option is to never not speak or to never act. The option is is never to stay silent or never to act. We need to use wisdom, which means we need to know this Bible. And we need to use the wisdom of the Spirit of God revealed to us through the Word of God. In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus wrote seven letters to seven churches. You can look across the landscape of the church today and see every one of these churches in existence. And in some way, the church universal demonstrates and displays the characteristics of all seven of these churches. I don't believe these seven churches represent seven historical periods of time. I believe these seven churches were real churches that existed in that day, and they speak to the condition of the entire church. I want to draw your attention to the last church, the church at Laodicea. And Jesus says this, and to the angel of the church of Laodicea write, Revelation three, fifteen. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you, that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten Therefore, be zealous and repent. I believe God is calling his church back to a passion. That passion is found only in Christ. And I believe God, just as he did in that letter to the church at Laodicea, is calling us today to be zealous and to repent. God is calling the body of Christ to awake, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 34, Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. 
In his letter to the Ephesians chapter 5, Paul writes this, verse 14, Therefore he says, Awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. It is a call to awake. The church, including Christ's fellowship, has walked around in a slumber, not discerning the times, living distracted lives and being unwise. And it's time to awake, it's time to come into the light. When Jesus and Peter, James and John went up on the Mount of Transfiguration, they're up there on the mountain with Jesus and the Bible says that they're the eyes of the disciples were heavy with sleep. And while they were heavy with sleep, Moses and Elijah come down from heaven. Jesus is transfigured and, and reveals his true glory. And Peter, coming out of his slumber, wakes up. And it says in verse 32 of Luke chapter 9, but Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep, and when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. When they were fully awake, they saw his glory. Do you know why we have a hard time seeing the glory of God today? Because we're not fully awake. Because we're walking around in a slumber. Because we're in that state. Have you ever, you ever been in that state where you're half asleep and you're half awake? I'm there almost every morning. I lay in the bed. My alarm goes off. And I'm in that state of being half asleep and half awake. And whether I get up in time, to turn, it's all determined what, what, which way I drift. I'm either drifting back into sleep or I'm, I'm going to drift out of bed and wake up. Have you ever been in that state of half slumber and half awake? And you're thinking all kinds of things. And then when you finally get up and you get going, it's like, now what was that? I thought I was thinking something, but, but you forget. Because in your state of slumber, because you didn't wake up, because you didn't get up, because you didn't act, but you just laid there with good intentions, with good thoughts. But there was never any action. There was not a move to action. Listen, it says, when they were fully awake, they saw his glory. Only when we are fully awake will we see his glory. The problem today is that too many people are walking around in a slumber. They're not fully awake. Therefore, they can't see the glory of Christ. And because we can't see the glory of Christ the way we desire to see the glory of Christ, we begin to enter into doubt and unbelief. The enemy lulls us into a slumber and our flesh cheerfully complies. We often do not reside in true rest or in true vitality. But we live between sleepwalking through life and thinking we have seen his glory, but in reality, it's only the fleeting of our own imagination. When you see the glory of God, you'll know you've seen it. When you encounter Jesus, you'll know that you've encountered Jesus. 
When you really encounter Jesus, you're never going to have to wonder, I wonder if I really encountered him or not. No, you will know that you've encountered Jesus when you really encounter him. And if you don't know whether you've really encountered Jesus or not, I would encourage you to cry out, to seek after, to go after an encounter with Jesus. And allow him, invite him, implore him, beg him to change your life. To take you out of the slumber you may be living in right now and to wake you up and to reveal himself to you that you will know that you have seen him in his glory. We must be fully awake to see his glory. And God is calling the body of Christ to wake from its slumber and to see the glory of God. Paul writes this in Romans 13, verse 10. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this, knowing the time, that now it is High time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore let us cast off the works of darkness. And let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day. Not in revelry and drunkenness. Not in lewdness and lust. Not in strife and envy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. It is high time that we awake, Paul writes. It is time to awake, time to arise, time to come into the light and to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. It is time to stop making provision for the flesh because God is calling his body to awake. God is calling us to passion. He's calling us to awake. God is calling the body of Christ to set their mind. Go to Colossians chapter 3. Paul in his letter to the Colossians writes this, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3. If then you are raised with Christ, seek those things which are far above Seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with God in Christ. When Christ who is our life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanliness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in the knowledge of 
renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing singing and making melody in your heart, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Distraction and double-mindedness plague the church and we must find our focus and we must set our mind. And that's exactly what Paul says to do. He says, seek those things above. Set your mind on things above where Christ is. Setting our mind sets the course of our life. Where your mind is set is the direction your life will go. You get that, church? Whatever your mind is set on is the direction your life is going to go. Whatever your mind is set on is what your life is going to conform to. Set your mind on Christ and your life will grow into the image of Christ. Set your mind on self and your personal issues and your life will shrink into those things. And you will be defined by your problems. When in reality, God wants your life to be defined by Christ. After standing two hours in front of that Planned Parenthood clinic yesterday, the indifference that I saw in the face of so many people became glaringly obvious to me. We've deceived ourselves into thinking that if we somehow just turn our eyes or bury our head or drown out the noise from the sin that screams at us, it will all go away or it'll somehow get fixed and we won't have to deal with it. Have you guys ever tackled a problem like that? If I just ignore it, it'll go away. Have you ever had an unfinished task around your house? You walk by that thing. You think, well, if I keep looking at it long enough, maybe it'll get fixed, but it doesn't ever seem to get fixed. And what happens pretty soon, you don't even see it anymore. It doesn't even exist anymore. But it's still there. If God allows you to get off that easy, if we could just ignore things and they go away if we could just ignore sin and it go away if we could just ignore what's wrong with our culture and it would just suddenly fix itself if you could just live in denial for the rest of your life about your sin and about your issues and they would just go away that would be 
Well, it really wouldn't be great. Because if God allows you to do that, that's not good because that means that you're not really his son. Because God chastens those whom he loves. That's what we just read. Those were the words of Jesus in Revelation chapter 3. God chastens those whom he loves. Those whom he does not love, he leaves alone. And lets them live in their illusion and in their deception. So you really don't want to get off that easy. If you do, then I pity you because it means that you're not truly a child of God. God does not allow his children to bury their heads. He will gently nudge us if needed. He will violently knock us down so that our heads will come out of the darkness and into the light. He does that with nations. Because nations are defined by people. There is no nation if there are no people. And the reason you see God allowing nations fall into judgment is because this is the mercy of God. This is God knocking his children down, causing them to come into the light when they just want to keep their heads buried in the sand and not deal with the issues that are glaringly obvious before them. God says, you know what? I'm not going to let you do that. I'm going to make you deal with it one way or the other. It's not always a pleasant experience, but it's always for our good. The scripture commands us to seek those things and to set our mind on those things above. This is the command recorded that we just read in Colossians 3. And and we see the result of walking that out in our life. Paul describes that there in his letter. So to set your mind is to have a single mind. And we'll never be able to set our mind if we live out out of a double mind. A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways, James writes. So we need to flee double-mindedness. We need to look at the scripture. We need to look to the scripture to know how and where to focus our mind in a single way. So James writes this, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. We need to learn how to do that. We need to learn how to count it all joy when we fall into various trials. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience, but let patience, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. If you're struggling in the midst of various trials, You're to know that the testing of your faith is producing patience. The problem is that we often do not let patience have its perfect and complete work because in our impatience, we become double-minded. Thus, we become unstable. Thus, we start going back and forth, back and forth. And we won't stay in one place long enough for God to deal with us and do his perfect work. So God lets us vacillate for a while and then we'll settle down and then God will deal with us again. And then we get impatient 
And we get unstable and we start vacillating again. But you know what? Eventually, because you're God's child and because he's good and because he's graceful and because he's merciful, God's going to put you in a place sooner or later, hopefully sooner, where he will not allow you to remain in your double-mindedness. Now, here's the beauty of God's grace. You hear my words, and you can choose to let patience have its perfect work because this is what the Scripture teaches us. And we can say, I'm going to stand. I want to run. I want to be unstable. I want to be double-minded, but I'm not going to do it. I'm going to stand. I'm going to let patience have its perfect work. I'm not going to run. I'm going to stand. And if you'll stand, and you'll stand in faith, and you'll take a stand, how do I know what to stand for? Get in this word. Read the scripture. It will tell you what to stand for. It'll tell you how to stand. Flee youthful lust, the Bible says. It'll even tell you when to run. It's important that we know when to run and when not to run. When sin and temptation are coming for us, we need to run away from it. When God is doing his work in us and working his patience in us through the various trials that he takes us through, that's not the time to run. That's the time to stand and to stand in faith. And to take it like a real man or a real woman. And this is why Paul stresses in his writings that we are not our own, but we belong to Christ. If we have a revelation that we are not our own, it becomes much easier to live beyond ourself and our own issues and seek those things above. When we fail to do that, when we're in the press, we begin to rationalize and we begin to create all sorts of imaginations and arguments in our mind that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5 tells us what to do there. It says the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds to cast down imaginations and and every argument that exalts itself against the knowledge of God being ready to punish all disobedience. Obedience through our obedience. But when we become double-minded, we begin to rationalize and create excuses. This is when these vain imaginations and these arguments exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. But the word of God plainly shows us, teaches us how to combat that, how to stand against that. And this, cre- this, this condition of being double-minded creates instability throughout every area of our life. It affects us, it affects our families, it affects those around us, it affects our culture. And we see the fruit of that today in America. What's the answer? Jesus is the answer. Who Who carries the standard? Who's the standard bearer for the answer? The church is the standard bearer. We are the standard bearer. We are those in the land who are to go through this land bearing the standard of Christ, saying, we have the answer. 
We have the power to change things. In your heart, in your mind, and in this land, we have that power. But it's got to begin with you. But it can't stop with you. That's why the corporate commit, commit, the corporate commitment has to come with a personal commitment from you and by you to be who God has called you to be. This doesn't mean that we don't deal with our self. We don't belong to ourselves. We're not our own, Paul writes. It doesn't mean that we don't deal with our personal issues or our personal problems or we never look inward. We need to do that. But that's not where we live. It doesn't mean that self and personal issues are not to be the focus. It means that that's not to be the focus of our life and our faith. Remember, if we get so mired in those things, it sucks all the energy. It sucks all the faith out of us. And we spend all of our time and all of our faith stuck in this place. And we can't ever see beyond to the greater issues that God put us on this earth to deal with. Christ is to be our focus and God takes care of all things as they flow from him and to him. So Jesus says, don't worry about what you're going to eat and what you're going to drink and what you're going to wear. God takes care of the birds. He takes care of the flowers. God knows how to take care of you. Seek first the kingdom and its righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. That's what Jesus said. But that's just Jesus. What does he know? He didn't live in the 21st century. He didn't have to pay a car payment. He didn't have to pay a house payment. He didn't even own a house. He didn't have to deal with the things I have to deal with. Easy for him to say that. You think I'm being facetious? There are people who actually think that way. Then there are those who would never voice that outwardly. But this is the way double-mindedness works. Well, I know that's not true, but you know, I have thought that. Does that really, is that really true? Does that promise really apply to me? Could it really apply to me today that if I seek first the kingdom, all these things will be added to me? Yes, 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 it really applies to you today because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. He is the eternal one. God is calling the body of Christ to passion. He's calling his body to awake. He's calling his body to set their mind on things above, on the work of God and the calling given to the church. God has called the body of Christ to a corporate commitment that demands our personal commitment to these things that are greater than ourself. In John chapter 4, we have the account of Jesus with the woman at the well, it's the Samaritan woman. And he's there talking to this woman. And his disciples have gone into town to get lunch. And they come back and they're like, Jesus, what are you doing talking to that Samaritan woman? In the meantime, she goes to town to go tell everybody that she has found the Messiah. And so Jesus is at the well with his disciples And they're like, hey, Jesus, you want some lunch? And Jesus says, I have food that's not of this world. My food is to do my Father's will. And the disciples are like, what's he talking about? 
seriously, this is, this, is, this is the dialogue that's going on. Turn over there. Let me read this to you from John chapter 4. And then we're closing. Verse 31, John 4, 31. I bear witness of myself. Oh, sorry, wrong chapter. In the meantime, the disciples urged him saying, Rabbi, eat. And he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? And Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life. And both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Where? Others have labored, you have entered into their labors. Look what he says to them. He says, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. So while Jesus' disciples are discussing amongst themselves lunch plans, The immediate issue on their mind, I can relate, just so you'll know. Jesus challenges them to lift up their heads and to look. Some of you might be thinking about lunch plans right now, wondering when I'm going to be quiet. That's why I saved the scripture for last, because I knew I'd be just a little past 12 and y'all would be wanting lunch. This is what God is challenging us to do, to lift up our eyes from the immediate thing that seems so important that is consuming our attention and our energy and to look and see the harvest that is before our eyes. So this is what we need to be able to do. We need to be able to discern what we need to set our mind on, what we need to set our eyes on. There are things of immediate concern that demand our attention. There are some things that seem they are of immediate concern that do not demand our attention. And we need to lift our head and we need to look and see something greater than what we have come to know thus far. far. The disciples went into town to figure out lunch. Jesus is ministering to a Samaritan woman He's dealing with eternal salvation. They're dealing with temporal lunch. It's not that lunch isn't important. Lunch is very important. God made us needing food. He made food and enjoyment for us. And rightly so. But there are times when that is not the most important thing. We all have issues that we deal with personally. And rightly so. And there are times when those issues demand our absolute undivided attention. 
But there are other times when we need to be able to put away and put aside our issues and say there is something greater that demands our attention right now. We have to be able to do that. We will never see the harvest if we do not lift our heads and look beyond ourselves. We will not truly care if we have no passion. We will never see him in his glory unless we are awake. We will remain unstable in all our ways if we do not set our mind on him and the things above. Stand and let's pray. Setting our mind on things above is not ignoring things below. On the contrary, God, we are asking you, we cry out to you in the power of your spirit to change our hearts and our minds, to give us eyes to see, to give us the grace to set our minds on things above so that things below, things on this earth, Lord, can change that your glory and your witness would be known right here on this earth in the tangible things and the tangible lives all around us. Father, I pray that you would discomfort us, unsettle us, and do not allow us to be content with lesser things of this earthly realm in place of the things above, the eternal things that you have secured for us in Christ. Help us to know and to experience the eternal joy that is ours right now in Christ. Right here on this earth. Lord, challenge us to seek your passion, to arise and to awake from our slumber, to see your glory with eyes wide open. Challenge us to set our minds on things above and to turn from those things distracting us and causing us to be double-minded and unstable. Challenge us to be zealous Give us the grace to repent and to be hot for your glory. Father, we pray this in the name of Jesus, the name above all names. And God's people said, Amen.